How y'all doing? Y'all doing all right? Man, well, it's good to see you. For those of you that maybe haven't been here for a while, my name's Stephen, and we are continuing a series that we started several weeks ago um, called This Means War, where together we're taking a look at really issues that maybe you haven't heard discussed in church, but greatly affect your life, and issues that the Bible has a lot to say. I want to encourage you, if you're just getting started with us, we actually build every single week from a foundation of the week before through series. And so what we're trying to get our mind around is what is the role of a Christian in this incredibly divided and polarized world? I'm going to be able to recap just a little bit of where we've been, but I want to encourage you, if you missed every sing- any of the weeks, make sure that you go back. We actually started week one talking about the war on God. I think a lot of times you can look out on culture and you can, you can think that like what we're going through, matter of fact, can you put up that uh, pyramid for me? Thanks. Go ahead. I'll wait on it. Thanks. So the foundation of our war is the war on God. A lot of times we think that our war is against each other. The truth is it's not. A war has been raging since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when we chose the knowledge of good and evil above the tree of Life, And so we talked about what that war on God looks like. The enemy has nothing on God because he's God, but God created you and I as image bearers and Christ made us sons and daughters. And so now the enemy rages his war on us. How does he do that? What's his strategy? Where he attacks the truth. The war on truth is built on top of the war on God. If the devil can get you to believe something that's not true about God, about him, about yourself, or about those in your life, he can actually run your life and our world. He distorts the truth. Then he goes after the family, which is the building block of all civilization. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I I teach this a lot in pre-marriage counseling. But the very first father to ever walk his daughter down the aisle was God. You can see this picture in the book of Genesis. God decided civilization, the foundation of all civilization was going to be the family. How many of you guys have a perfect family? Nope. You know, the Bible's filled with families. If you want to feel better about your family, just go read about some of their families. The reality is, is because of sin and death, we're, we, we don't, we don't, we don't, we're not always perfect. We need God's grace and our family doesn't always look like it. But how many of you know you need to have an ideal to work towards? You need to understand God's role for family. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then last week we talked about the war on education. And we learned that although we have some great teachers and administrators and people that help us in the, in the government do all that, the reality is the parents are the number one educator in their kids' life. On top of that, the Bible says when you give your life to Christ, you're placed into a spiritual family called the local church. There are only two institutions ordained by God to train up children in the way of the Lord. It's parents and it's the church. We talked about that that week. And today we're going to talk about the war on government, the war on government. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, 6, verse 10, he's praying to God and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as it is in heaven. You know, I think there's a lot of times you, you and I as believers, we've been, tra- we've been really tricked into believing uh, that we can compartmentalize our faith and our life. You know, when you look at history, specifically the history of the church, this has been a common deception uh, in churches since the church began over 2,000 years ago. Maybe you haven't considered this, but when you give your life to Christ, you're essentially telling him that he's the Lord of your life. Not just this part of your life, not just that part of your life, but your entire life. 
And today we're going to unpack what the war on government has done uh, to our perceptions as believers in our role, but also to our world at large. Did you know that the job of your pastor is to always teach you the whole word of God? And that can sometimes be tricky because personally, I really like the Christmas and Easter messages. Y'all like that? But you know, sometimes if you're in a good church, what's going to happen is your pastor is going to challenge something that you believe. There's a tendency that we have as believers to coast and drift. We give our life to Christ at the point of the cross. We need God's grace and forgiveness to to step in to start our walk. But it's still that grace and forgiveness that enables us to be able to understand and walk in the ways of God. And if we're not careful, what happens over time is we experience drift or coast. You know, we kind of coast. You know, church kind of becomes more of a place we go to instead of a community we're a part of. And then there's a little bit of drift. Well, I have this friend, and they have this opinion, and I have this this ideology. And it's but how many of you know it's the Bible that works? And so sometimes, as a pastor uh, in any given church at any given time, it's our responsibility to tell you the truth, even when it might make you a little mad at us, because we know that truth always sets people free. You know, one of the things that makes it easier for you to stand for your faith in a toxic culture and for me to teach the truth, even though it's kind of difficult sometimes, is to remember that one day I'm going to stand before God alone. It's just going to be me. None of the opinions on Facebook or Twitter. None of the, you know, right? the mob's not going to be there. My own wife and kids aren't going to be there. And first, God's going to say, hey, did you put your faith and trust in Jesus? I'm going to go, absolutely, I did. And then he's going to go, okay, great, well, you're in heaven. But then there's a second judgment called the judgment seat of Christ, where we're actually judged by Christ on how well we leveraged our influence and stewarded what he gave us to bring his kingdom to earth. He prays about it right here. And here's my goal as a pastor. My goal as a pastor is on the other side of that discomfort, you would adjust your life and the way you think to how God thinks. And as a result, one day you'll stand before God and you'll hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's really what motivates me. And I'm going to tell you, if some, some of these topics have made you feel uncomfortable, I, I'm okay with that. Okay. And if you don't really like it, I'm okay with that too. Don't worry. Christmas is coming. Come on. But we've really got to have some serious conversations because what's happened is the philosophies of the world have infiltrated our church. And the Bible says that we're to be the light to the world, not to be infiltrated and dimmed by it. And so we got to make some corrections. God will never orbit our universe. Okay, we don't get to pick what's true and what's not. Truth is either discovered or it's revealed. It is not invented or created or reinvented by men and women. And the truth is God's word. That's our responsibility. In Hosea 4 verse 6 God says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And then he turns to the spiritual leaders to which he's saying this about. And he says, because you have rejected my knowledge, pastor, leader, priest, I will reject you from serving. That's what we're seeing in the greater body of Christ. The churches that are returning or remaining in biblical truth are actually thriving in a way they never have before. And those that have watered down the message for fear of the mob are actually in steady decline and have been for a long time. How does this happen? I talked about boiling a frog. You want to boil a frog? You don't just throw it in hot water. You give it a nice warm hot tub and then you turn the temperature up one degree at a time. And that frog will never know the difference, but will literally boil from the inside out. 
Here's the enemy's goal. The enemy's goal is to remove the knowledge about God and his goodness from the culture and replace it with the knowledge that is contrary to God's design for humanity because he knows he can never defeat God, but we allow him to defeat us all the time. The ancient adage goes, with great power comes great responsibility. Did you know as members of God's household, you and I have a responsibility to do what's right in our culture. We have a role to play. Matthew chapter 18, 19, Jesus says, again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. You know, it's interesting in that verse, the word for church is not a building, a synagogue, or a temple. It's not a physical place. The word Jesus uses is actually a non-religious Greek word called ecclesia. The Greek word was very known in the context of civic duty. It was a gathering of citizens, usually two or three of a particular country or government, called out from their homes into some public place of counsel for the purpose of deliberating public matters. They've gathered to make some civic decision. So Jesus was going to build a people who would understand their place of authority as citizens of heaven with the purpose of bringing heaven influence into every area of their life. The power of hell can't conquer them. This called out people, this ecclesia, are called to lead and influence in every area of culture. And a lot of times as Christians, we think, well, that's our pastor's job, but it actually isn't. Did you know only 3% of believers become pastors or go into full-time ministry? However, 97% of believers are called to use their influence to build God's kingdom on earth. Does that make sense? And that's really what we're talking about here. So here's the big idea for today's uh, message. Uh, next week, we're going to end our series talking about not a battle from the outside in, but an inside-out battle as we clear out our... our um, our series, but the biblical idea we're going to talk about today is Christians are called to engage in politics and influence government. I'm going to make a biblical case for that. Unfortunately, since the 1960s, believers have been essentially gaslit out of the public square, um, and as a result, the church has by and large taken this posture that there's some things you just don't talk about. What are those around the dinner table? You don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion. But did you know politics and religion completely impact your life in huge ways? And God has a ton to say about both. If you think about it, I hear a lot of people, even pastors, dismissing politics. But nowhere in the Bible do we see this. For example, Jesus engaged political and religious leaders directly. You might remember Jesus standing before Pilate. And Pilate says, I have the power to condemn you to death. And Jesus goes, Pilate, you have no power apart from that which my Father has given you. Pretty bold, wouldn't you say? He said even bolder things to religious leaders, which in the day also had governmental positions. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was born a Roman citizen. He allowed a group of non-Romans to bloody him so bad, right before an inch of his life, he says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. To mess with Rome was, to mess with the Roman was to mess with all of Rome. I mean, you know, I think the church should be like that. You know, I can say a lot of things about my brothers and sisters, but you ain't saying nothing. Come on. I can have a lot of opinions about my family, but you don't mess with my family. Rome was like that. And the apostle Paul actually allowed himself to get bloody before he told them they were terrified. And 
he would end up appealing to Caesar and many of Caesar's household would come to Christ. Think about just a few people in the Bible who used their influence to impact God's kingdom throughout history. Think about Esther and Mordecai. Read that this week. Think about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about the prophet Samuel to King Saul. Think about the prophet Nathan to King David. The list goes on and on and on. When you break down the study of the word politic, it means pertaining to public affairs concerning the governance of a country or a people. It's directly related to this responsibility as a citizen. Did you know the religious people of Jesus' day tried to do the same thing to him that culture tries to do to us as well? They tried to trick him. They took a very controversial thing, the imperial tax, which was paid to Caesar as homage, recognizing him as God. The Jews had a massive issue with it. It was a tax imposed by Rome. They came to Jesus trying to trick him, right? And they said, is it right that we pay the imperial tax? Think about Jesus. Jesus didn't feel like many of us feel when we're asked controversial questions. We're kind of like, well, is this the time I finally get canceled? Is this the time it all comes crashing down? Jesus responds and he says this. Well, then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed him, them. Now, why must you think that, why would that reply, which seems like a normal reply that we've heard a lot in church, why would it completely amaze those who were listening? Because Jesus essentially asserted, yeah, you can give Caesar whatever he thinks he deserves, but make sure you understand that there is one God under heaven. The Bible says this completely shut every one of them up. They were amazed by his response. They were amazed. Why? Because he was standing up in a culture that was incredibly dark. Here's a big idea. We should use our faith in the context of our freedom to influence policy for righteousness. I believe that. I believe every Christian, there is no Switzerland the moment you surrender your life to Christ. The Bible says we now become slaves to Christ. Now he influences every part of our life, of our being. So we're gonna talk about the war on government. And I wanna make really clear as we're talking that all of this is founded on a foundation of the war against God first, then the war on truth, then the war on family, then the war on education. You see how it all slides upward. We get one wrong or out of order and all of a sudden everything comes crashing down. What is government's purpose? To establish laws, maintain order, provide security, protect citizen from external threats, to promote general welfare by promoting public service, to protect basic human rights. Who made them human? God made them human. They're not American. They're natural rights. Our founders understood this. The right to life, to liberty, to the pursuit of happiness. First thing we see is government is meant to mitigate the consequences of sin in the fall. Write that down. Government is meant to mitigate the consequences of sin in the fall. The first laws, ordinances ever created by God came during the Exodus around 1445 BC. And they weren't known as commandments, they were known as statements by our Jewish brothers and sisters. Meaning that it was just codified what always worked for every human being. God gave them laws to protect their relationship with him and each other. The first half have to do with how you relate to God. If you can't learn to relate to God, you'll never learn to re relate to your brother and sister. God's the foundation, it forms a cross. The horizontal is the 
how you and I get along. These laws were in sync with how God created humanity to function. And I'm going to read a passage of scripture that's often used uh, by what I would call pacifists, by people who would actually lead you to believe that it's Christian to never say anything. And the most Christian thing you can do is be thought well of by everyone else. They would use this to push you out of the square, to push you out of influencing your culture and your relationships. And we're going to get right on some of this. It's found in Romans chapter 13. We're going to read 1 and 3 and 4, which are some of the most misinterpreted passages of Scripture on the topic. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, in Rome, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. For it is God's servants, servant for your good. And I want to talk about government that's instituted by God here. Sometimes this verse is misread, misquoted, and misapplied to say that all government is good, but when you look closer, that's actually not what the author's saying. Apostle Paul first says that there is no authority except from God. He asserts the same thing that Jesus asserted with Caesar. God is above all authority. Does this mean that all authority is from God? Well, let me ask you this question. Did God put Hitler in his place? No, he didn't. That's not what the Apostle Paul's saying. What he's saying is that true authority, not stolen authority, authority built on tyranny and lies, but true righteous authority is the only legitimate authority that God establishes. Next, he says that rulers are not a terror to good, but to bad. What is this saying? He's defining for us what a legitimate ruler is. Keep in mind that the ruler of Rome at this time was literally lighting Christians on fire for entertainment. Was he saying that that was good godly authority? No. Why? Because God's servant in a a legitimate authority always looks for the good and the welfare of the people that they serve. Once again, he's describing legitimate rule and authority. Then he he finishes and he says, we should strive to see good, righteous, genuine, and fair, true rulers put into places of authority. I love this word strive because this side of heaven, that's what we're doing. Have you ever seen Jesus on a ballot? By the way, he's not going to be on a ballot. I think sometimes believers have this misconception that when Jesus comes back in all his glory, he's going to set up a Republican democracy. It's not true. And if you believe that, you're way more American than you are Christian. He's not. He's going to come and set up a theocracy. He's going to rule from the temple mount and every knee is going to confess. Right? Every knee is going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. But this side of heaven, right, we have better government systems than others. Just look at history. This side of heaven, Jesus is never going to be on a ballot, and he's always going to use Nebuchadnezzar's to exercise his will on earth. So we move on. Laws are necessary to prevent lawlessness. So government is meant to mitigate the consequences of sin and the fall, this side of heaven. Laws are necessary to prevent lawlessness. I love it when people say, don't you legislate morality. What exactly do you think a law is? Do this, don't do that. That's all you legislate. The difference is, is God determining your morality or are your own selfish ambitions and intellect doing so? Our founding fathers, when forming our constitution, pulled directly from the Bible to create it. 
James Wilson said that human laws must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority of that which law it was divine. Far from being rivals or enemies, religion and law are twin sisters. They're friends and mutual assistants. This was a U.S. Supreme Court justice and signer of the U.S. Constitution. Did you know half of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were pastors and theologians? Half. John Adams, and if you don't know who that is, well, you should get your money back from your education. Make sure your kids don't go to the same school you did. He said that we have no government armed in power capable of contending in human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Adams would go on to become one of our presidents and he would say that the Constitution is inadequate to deal with the people unless they are governed internally, seeing themselves before God and consistent to his word. In other words, as each of us realize that we're going to give an account before our creator, God, that's the extent to which we can live peaceably with one another. All of these people calling for unity without God, that's impossible. It will never, ever happen. And Jesus actually said this side of heaven, that wasn't his aim. He said, don't think that I've come to unify, I've come to divide. He's talking about right from wrong, up and down. He says that division is going to go through families, even at a dinner table. That division is going to ripple through churches where one side wants to stick with God's word and the other one's going, you know, we just, we, we, we think we can love culture better than God loves culture. So let's compromise. That rift comes right through every one of our hearts. Every time the Bible challenges us to change the way we think. Our founding fathers understood that true freedom could only stand on biblical truth and the morals that come from those who practice them, who commit to serve and to do good one to another. George Washington said this. He's another guy I hope you know. He said, it is impossible to rightly govern without the Bible. Is it possible to govern without the Bible? Yes, but not rightly without the Bible. The next thing that we see is you can't separate moral law from biblical principles. It was not unusual in the recording of the legislature early in this country when an individual would stand up and propose a new law for someone to reply, where do you see that in the Bible? You know, one of the things you can really do as a believer to guard yourself against deception is always question everything you hear and ask this question. Where do I see that in the Bible? You go to a court of law today. I haven't been in too many of them, thank goodness. That may change as time goes on, who knows? But before a witness gets up to testify, what do they put their right hand on? The Bible. What is that meant to do? Hey, remember, you may get away with a lie here, but you never get away with a lie before God. You can't separate moral law from biblical principles. Next, history always repeats itself no matter how hard you try to rewrite it. We talked a lot about this history. We talked a lot about how even in our own time it started Right around the time of the scientific revolution, 1859, Darwin publishes Origin of Species. He lets his heart get bitter and frustrated, and he begins, he begins to remove God from the foundation of all reason and science, even though it's God that gave him the ability to reason, the ability to think. All of that comes from God. You remove God, all you have left is the pride of your own intellect. One just needs to visit a university to see that. In the 1960s, we then have every standard being challenged, the Bible and prayer being thrown out. God and reason don't conflict. God's actually 
the foundation of all science. One of his names is omniscient, but when you remove him, what do you fill it with? Here's what I'll tell you about history repeating itself. This is nothing new. Every single time you remove God from the foundation of our life, it always gets filled by government. Have you noticed? It's not a parent's job what's in the library. You know, I'm not gonna do anything that would actually promote dads sticking around or promote marriage or the welfare. I'm just gonna let the problem get so bad that the only answer without God is, you know what? Let's have a little more government. You notice their plan is always more of what doesn't work, more of what caused the problem to begin with. And this is the danger for the church because we can get lured into this. I saw this during the pandemic, this idea where churches literally, most of them didn't help each other. You know what they said? Why don't you get some of that PPP money? Why don't you just go to the government? They'll take care of it. Instead of serving your neighbor, instead of having each other's back, instead of those wealthy churches supporting the ones that weren't so wealthy, which is the model we see in scripture, they said, why don't you go to Caesar? He'll take care of it for you. That's always what happens. Make no mistake, and as Christians, the Bible says we should be as shrewd as serpents, gentle as doves, meaning we shouldn't be naive. Every single new answer of another government program when the other ones didn't work. We keep putting our hope in things other than God, other than his truth, other than how he builds. And as a result, here's what happens. The more God is removed from culture, the more chaos reigns. The more chaos reigns. You know, you might be asking, okay, pastor, like, I get it, okay, I got it, okay, I got it. There's nothing wrong with a believer engaging public discourse taking place in politics. You just better make sure that God's first and that he's informing what you do. I hear people say this all the time. God doesn't care how you vote. That's so unbiblical and not true. God cares about everything you do. The Bible says that God knows the number of hairs on your head. For those of you going bald, he knows the number of hairs that should be on your head, but aren't there. (laughs) Sometimes it's easier to count those. What does that tell you about what he's called you to do with your influence? If you're in here today, I'll just tell you as a believer, don't skirt your responsibility to do what's right. Don't skirt your influence to stand up. There's a few things I would give you in closing that I think might help you. They've definitely helped me. What is our role as Christians? Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The churches that don't engage culture, they're good for nothing. And guess what? They're all declining, every one of them. But the ones who are stepping up and shining light, they're thriving. You are the light of the world, a city, a city situated on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's a pretty remarkable passage. In John 8, 12, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. But here in Matthew, he says that you and me are the light of the world. Light's not meant to be hidden. We've got to let it shine. How do you do that practically? I'm going to give you a few things. I want you to really think about this. The first is this. You need to stay informed. You need to stay informed about what's going on around you. I'm not saying that you need to be so focused on it that you can't raise your kids and you can't keep a good attitude. I'm not saying you need to go down some rabbit hole of a conspiracy or get weird. But you can't just stick your head in the sand and pretend like, oh, well, that's off limits for me. There is no Switzerland for those who follow Christ. There is only to do the will of Christ on earth, period. 
Next, you've got to keep praying. What about? The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.1, First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. This is good. Everyone say good. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. You know what happens when we exercise our ability to shine our light for Christ, it makes everything better. We need to pray for the salvation of our leaders. This side of heaven, we need to understand that we're gonna strive. They're not gonna be perfect. We've gotta be involved. Jeremiah 1, 9 and 10, then the Lord reached out and touched my mouth and said, look, I have put my words in your mouth today. I appoint you to stand up against nations and kingdoms. Some of you must uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow. Others you must build up and plant. It's one of the things I love about God. Every battle in the body of Christ isn't every members of the body of Christ. There are people that are like me. They're a little bit more disagreeable. They don't mind it when large groups of people don't like them. Although it's not comfortable. I enjoy Christmas and Easter too. And then there are other people. You have a different role to play in the body of Christ and how you influence. The key here is, is that believers remember that whether you're the mouthpiece, right, speaking, or you're the one building, that we all have a part to play. Does that make sense? By the way, that's real diversity. We all bleed red, that's not diversity. Real diversity is us honoring and respecting each other's role and what God's called us to do. The next thing I would tell you to do is you need to cast your vote. What happens in government and politics has a direct impact on your life and your church, your ability to share the gospel. I was speaking with somebody, a friend of mine who's an activist. He's a believer first and then an activist. He loves God deeply. And he sat down with a few of us pastors and he said, first of all, the most important thing that we need to protect is our ability to share the gospel and make disciples. The second most important thing is our ability to share the gospel and make disciples. He said, I'll take care of the second one, you focus on the first one. That's an example of different members of the body of Christ focusing on their own roles. You might be going, well, pastor, how in the world can I cast my vote for heathens? Well, guess what? That's the only option this side of heaven is heathens. And God used Nebuchadnezzar's greatly. He used Cyrus's. He used Caesar's throughout history. Never underestimate what God can do through an ungodly leader. Right? Here's what I would encourage you to do. Instead of being so wrapped up in how a leader makes you feel and how many followers they have or what they're tweeting, focus on what they do. I've learned this as a believer. I've actually learned this as a pastor when I'm discipling people. It doesn't matter how much people say they're saved and they love God. What really, hap- what really matters is what they actually do. What do they actually do? You know, I don't trust a politician as far as I could look at them any more than I trust my own sin and my own inclinations. What do we do? We judge by their fruit. We look at what they do. We're not motivated by our feelings. We're made it motivated. And did they say, did they do what they said they were going to do? And if they don't, I think we need to make them pay severely by withdrawing our vote. I think that's a powerful, godly thing to do. Next, I think we need to get involved. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Support candidates who love God, who vote biblical values. Maybe that's you. I realize today I'm the oldest millennial that there is. 38, born in 1984. I'm surrounded by people now that are getting into office, running for school boards, running for mayors and all this different stuff. And I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I used to think that was the old people. (laughs) We've 
gotta step up and take our place. Here's what I would encourage you to do in our system. Although it's not perfect, our system has produced the most prosperity for the most amount of people, the most freedom for the most amount of people across the world than any other government system. I know history, that's a fact, Jack. It's true. And it may not be perfect, but we've still got to engage it, be a part. I would encourage you to start local. Know who's on your school boards. Who are your mayors, your police commissioners, your DAs, your governors. This isn't just about the federal government and all those fights. This is about your community. Start there. Romans 8, 19, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father. I love this. Full of grace and truth. As you're pursuing God, you're gonna need both at different times. You're not always gonna make the right decision. It's not always gonna work out perfect, but God's grace is there with you, right? You wanna know what the truth is? Open up God's word and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. It's not godly to sit back and watch when God has called us to engage. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much, Father, for the power of your word. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in our lives. I thank you, God, that you called each and every one of us exactly where we are to exercise our influence in a world gone mad, in a culture that lies. We're called to be truth and life. I thank you, Father, for humble resolve to be able to stand up when we need to stand up, to be able to speak when we need to speak, to allow our light to shine into the darkest recesses of our culture. That's why we're here, and that's what you've called us to do. I also pray, Father, for anybody within the sound of my voice that's not following you. I pray, Lord, that they would not leave this place the same way that they came in, that your Holy Spirit would draw them to repentance, would draw them to surrender. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one looking around. We're almost done. I believe one of the most important things that we do at every one of our locations, every single time, is we provide a moment in services, a place and a space where people who are far from God can make a decision to draw near to him. If you're in here today and you're far from God, here's what you need to hear. God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die for you on the cross. That's heads are bowed, eyes are closed. One of the things you need to know about God is he's not a tyrant, a bully. He's never gonna force you or compel you. He loves you and respects you. That's where our idea of freedom comes from. God first expressed that freedom to us, the freedom to choose him or to reject him. And although he's not going to bully his way into your life, he does require that you're serious. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, the way to get right with God isn't to have everything put together to have all the right answers, but to rely on the one who does and who has. The Bible says that it's through an act of free will that you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord. You believe what the Bible says about him is true, that he died on the cross for your sin, that on the third day he conquered death to give you life. The Bible says on the other side of that decision, it's not a parking space, but it's a launching pad to hearing his voice, to walking in his ways. And his heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Listen, I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna single you out. I'm not gonna do anything weird. But Jesus does say that those who acknowledge me before my father or before men, I'll acknowledge you before my father. And those who don't, I won't. I think it's important between me, you and God, if you're here and you're saying, Pastor, I'm far from God, I don't wanna be. And you want my prayer, would you just put your hand up halfway? Is there anybody in here you say, that's me, I see you, I see you. Thank you, sir, thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Just put it up, put it right back down. You're just acknowledging, that's me. 
That's me. Is there anyone else you say, Pastor, that's me? Thank you. In a moment, we're going to pray a prayer. It's based on this scripture. I'm going to encourage you, if you raised your hand and you really meant it, I want you to allow this prayer. I want you to repeat it loud enough where you can hear your own voice and allow this prayer to be an expression of why you raised your hand. I believe God's going to meet you on the other side. I believe he's going to tell you to do something. My encouragement to you is always listen to God. Do what he says. We're also going to give you some next steps, but first we're going to pray a prayer of surrender. Really mean it. I believe God's going to meet you. As a matter of fact, you're surrounded by people who love Jesus. They're going to pray this with you so as to encourage your faith. Let's all pray together. Everyone pray, Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth, for living a perfect life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I believe that you are God and I believe you're good. I believe on the third day after you were killed, you rose from the dead. I believe you conquered death once and for all to give me life once and for all. And of my own free will, I confess you as my Lord, my Savior, and my King. Thank you for saving me and for leading me. Show me what's next. It's in your name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Come on, church, let's put our hands together.